Hi, it's Mackenzie, and this is the Mill Spouse Brief. Happy Friday. I hope you guys are having a wonderful week. We have been busy over here at the Culver House. Last week, my cousin came into town, which was so much fun. And so we went down to San Diego, and we saw, we did like the tour of the U.S. Midway, which was so cool. I literally tell everybody that they should go to that because after now going to it, it's amazing. And there's a movie about the Midway you can check out. And then I think just because now I have like some bias because I want to get into the Navy, seeing it and getting to talk to people about kind of their experience. A lot of people that worked on the Midway now volunteer there at the museum. And so overall, it was just really cool. So if you're ever in San Diego, I totally recommend going and seeing it. It's a whole kind of like day excursion, probably like maybe half a day because there's just so much to see and read and learn about. And I don't know, it was really fun. We checked out La Jolla, which is where Kate and I got engaged, and then we had a beach day on Thursdays here in Oceanside. They do like a farmer's market, so we went to that, and we saw the pier and kind of walked around there, and then they have like a sunset market in the evening, so kind of some of the same vendors from the farmer's market, but then also a lot more vendors, a lot more like food trucks and things like that, and it's like four or five streets for the farmer's market or for the Sunset Market compared to the Farmer's Market, it's pretty much just like one long street. So we went and checked out that, and that was really fun, and kind of just hung out and had fun just catching up. We did our book club, all that kind of fun stuff. And then um, I also had to work a bunch in the last few weeks getting ready for elections and setting everybody up around the country so that they can print their ballots for November election. So that was good, and then Kate was in the field for like eight, nine days, and so it was pretty quiet around here, you know, it's really different, like, when he's gone, like, how different things are. Um, I feel like we have a lot more of a routine when he's here, just because of work, versus when he's not here. I'm like, oh, I eat whenever I do these things whenever, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just funny seeing the contrast of, like, our lives depending on when he's home or when he's not home. But overall, it was really fun. I'm glad he's back. And this week, we've just had a lot of, like, catching up to do and errands to run and, you know, different things like that. I wonder, for any of the listeners, if you guys have Costco memberships, how much do you spend at Costco every time you go and, like, how often do you go? Because I feel like I can never not spend so much money there. And granted, like, everything we buy, we use. Like, nothing goes to waste. And I get you're buying it in bulk. But overall, like, still, I just feel like no matter what, I'm dropping like 200 bucks every time I go, which I don't know. Tell me if that's normal or if it's not. I want to know. So I have been kind of struggling figuring out what direction I want to go with the podcast and what I want to do. So I won't give out all the details yet, but we have this episode and then we have one more episode next week and then that will end season one. So season two will start um, the 8th of October, which happens to be my birthday. So that's one of the hints I'll give you for what season two will be about. And I'm really, really excited. Um, Shout out to my girl, Emily. She kind of let me vent and talk to her and kind of pick her brain and try to figure out what area I want to go and like what direction I want to take the podcast. So I'm really excited for season two. I had a really big brainstorming session yesterday and kind of got everything lined up and in order. So hopefully you guys will stick around and check out season two and let me know what you guys think. 
And this episode is with Marty. And you guys, Marty is literally the best. It was so much fun recording this episode with her. She'll obviously explain in detail kind of who she is and what she's about. But a little backstory, she's my grandparents' neighbor. Uh, my grandparents right now have a house in Holly Springs, North Carolina, and so that's where they live, and they live right across the street. So Kate and I met her when we went to North Carolina after our wedding in July, and it was really fun talking to her, and then I was like, yeah, I would love to have you on the podcast, and so we recorded the episode about like a month and a half ago, and it's so informational, you guys. She was an active duty um, service member, and then she was a military spouse, and now her husband just got out. And so she talks all about their life and all the different places that they lived and what it was like raising kids while active duty, then raising kids as a military spouse, having her husband have like unaccompanied orders and them living across the country from each other. So she has so much good insight and a lot of just knowledge and truly like just so smart when it comes to like how to like best succeed in the military i felt like i gained so much information that i can apply to our to my life and to kate's life and our life together and so i'm just really grateful that she took the time to get on there she is a seasoned military spouse and i am so grateful that we have them on the podcast because obviously i'm brand new to being a military spouse and so I know very little compared to seasoned military spouses and so she really does give a lot of information and I feel it can help military spouses whenever they struggle. So check out this episode with Marty. I really love it and it's a bit long but it's so worth it so just hold on and listen to the whole thing because there's so much good stuff in it and without further ado here's Marty. All right, so I'm here with Marty. Do you want to introduce yourself, Marty? Hi, I'm Marty Orton. I currently live outside of Raleigh, North Carolina with my family. Uh, my husband uh, just retired from active duty Air Force. I was in the Air Force uh, previous to becoming a military spouse. So I spent about 15 years in the Air Force. And then I have spent 20 oh I'm old I've spent 20 years uh over 20 years I have spent over 20 years as a military spouse oh my gosh how long has your husband how long did your husband serve before you retired so he was in a little over 25 years wow that's amazing yeah he was in a little over 25 years and we have been married about 20 three years. Yeah. About 23 years. And so I was only active duty for about, I guess, maybe two years of our marriage. Cause I got out two or three years after we got married because I wanted to, um, I'd had one child already as an active duty member. And you know, we were talking about having more children and I did not want to, for me, a lot of people make it work, you know, both spouses active, active duty and having children. Um, and like with our, we were both in the same career field and our particular career field required, you know, a lot of de deployments. Yeah. What was your guys' MOS? 
So we, we were uh, what's called air battle managers within the Air Force. So we were uh, both flight crew at different points. I was primarily a, a flight crew member. My husband had done both ground crew and flight crew. And, you know, as you move along the chain and uh, get more responsibility, you end up doing more management type things, but um, still in operations and being in operations, uh, the it's just very demanding. And, and like I said, some people work, make it work with both members being active duty, but it's very difficult. The military is demanding period, whether you're both in or one person's in and uh, the other person is a civilian, it doesn't matter. It's a demanding lifestyle. For, so for us, our choice was that if we were going to have more children, I did not want to be active duty anymore because uh, essentially I felt like I was doing both jobs terrible. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of responsibility. That's a lot to do. Okay, so backtrack. You said that you were active duty when you had your first kid. What was that like for you? You know, like being pregnant while in the military, going through giving birth while in the military, like that kind of thing. What was your experience? Actually, the being pregnant. So being pregnant in the military did not, uh, in and of itself, didn't bother me. I got frustrated at a couple of points because at that point I was flying, uh, but I was very, uh, I was very strong-willed about how I wanted things to go. So um, uh, my flight, the flight surgeon I had that was responsible for me would have said I was a royal pain in the butt. I just <laughs> I was very determined to do it my way. So theoretically you cannot fly your first trimester. And I um, somehow did not uh, uh, go to the flight surgeon until almost the end of my first trimester. So I was pretty much there. And then my second trimester, I was able to fly and still continue my regular duties. So I pretty much did that the first six months. Um, My biggest frustration and and I actually got pretty angry about it was I was in uh, instructor upgrade for um, uh, my field. So I was uh, becoming an instructor for my position, which, you know, at that point when you're first in is a big deal, you know, enough to teach it to other people. And I was the youngest one that had been picked for that. So I was like, yeah, you know, I was excited and I was proud that I was successful and had gotten picked for it. And they, they stopped my upgrade, even though I had finished most of it because I was pregnant. And at, oh the, my end, goodness. at the end of six months, I would not be able to fly. So at the six month point, at the end of my second trimester, I could no longer do flying duties. And my point was I have time to finish the flying portion of my upgrade. And their point was, well, we can't use you as an instructor when you finish because you're going to be grounded. And I was like, but you can't get somebody else upgraded in that time period. Like yeah. even, 
even with my maternity leave, I'll still be ready to go before another person would. But I lost that argument. And for me, that was a real sore point because it wasn't logical. And and to me, decisions should be logic-based, not you're pregnant, we're going to yank you. And so I I did get to finish it after um, I delivered and after I completed my maternity leave. I was able to to finish my upgrade, but it did it did definitely sour it for me. But I being pregnant in and of itself wasn't an issue because I worked right up until the end. When I went on ground duty, I just made sure I lined up things. I had been selected to go to an advanced school that didn't require flying. Mm-hmm. It was all groundwork. I'd been selected for an a ground school. And so I was able to talk them into letting me go to a different class. So as, nice. soon, as, I was grounded, as soon as I was grounded during my third trimester, I went to my advanced course. And How much time do they give you off after you have the baby as active duty? Is it still 12 weeks or is it different? No, when I... When I gave birth, it was a month because it was a vaginal birth. If you get a C-section, you got six weeks. If it was a vaginal birth, you got one month. So I went back to work after one month and that was hard. So is that still the case now? I, I know, I know they have changed. I don't know about the initial maternity leave, but Mm -hmm. they have changed I know that they have changed the rules in different ways. And uh, they're looking at, um, um, and I think they've already implemented it. It would be, if somebody wanted to do this, it's worth looking up because- um, I think started- it's 12 weeks. Right now they get 12 weeks. Oh, okay. So, so it's up to six weeks of maternity leave with an additional six weeks of primary leave tacked on. And then secondary caregivers currently get two weeks. Yeah, I knew, I knew they had changed some aspects of it and they were allowing secondary caregivers to have leave now too, which is great. I mean, I, I can't even imagine only having a month and then back to work. I mean, I feel like your body's not even completely like healed from that. Even if it was a vaginal birth versus C-section, they're both very taxing on your body. Yes, I think, uh, so I was young then, that wasn't as bad as, (laughs) (laughs) I could not do that now. But uh, the, the heart, well, first of all, the sleep deprivation was literally the hardest part. Yeah, um, but uh, just going back to work at that point was very hard. And um, other countries, like at that time, I had worked with some Australians, and I was very envious of the fact that the Australian service allowed you to take a break in service. And I and I think our Department of Defense has looked at this and may have implemented certain aspect of, aspects of it because you can take a break in service and come back in right where you were at before. And they, the Australians, I think at that time allowed up to two years, it may have just been one, 
but uh, I think that's that interesting. I, I thought it was fantastic because I, I loved my job. I really did love being in the Air Force. I loved my job, um, but it was just very hard for me to go back and be as immersed in it as I had been and uh, be a mom. I felt like I was just not doing either one as well as I wanted to. And was your husband also in the military at this time? No, my first husband was a civilian. Okay, so he was a civilian and then your now husband is in the military or just retired from the military. Okay, so was it hard for your first husband having you have to go back to work so soon with the baby? Like, how was that adjustment for you guys? You know what? That is a really good question. I think the hardest thing for him uh, was he was just not cut out to be responsible for, you know, our kid in that, in that really what he just wasn't cut out for that. I have known like good friends of ours. um, They were both active duty and he was able to retire when their kids were young and she was still, she was junior to him and she is still in, she's still active. Oh, that's so cool. He retired and he is a fantastic stay-at-home parent. So do you think it just really depends on the person? I really think it does depend on the person. I've known more than one person that, uh, you know, the non-traditional, you know, role of the man staying home and that have done well. And so I just, I think it's totally dependent on the person and the couple, you know, whatever, however your family is structured, I, I think it's really depends on that couple and that family, you know, what works for them, what is best for them. So when I had remarried and both of us were active duty and we talked about having kids, um, you know, I, I was, I was very torn, but I really just didn't think the best. So we discussed it you know, multiple times, both before we got married and after we got married and the best thing for us. And, uh, for me, if I was going to have more kids was to be able to be at home and provide the much needed stability that you need, uh, in that lifestyle. Oh, a hundred percent. And I definitely think it's hard because when you have both parents in active duty, you don't have the one that's home because you guys can both be on deployment schedules. You guys both have workups and field ops and things like that. And so I can only imagine how hard it is for dual military with children because you don't have that parent that is home holding and having like adding that stability. So that's really interesting. Okay. So explain what you and your husband's jobs are. So you talked about your MOS a little bit, but what did your like day-to-day looked like what were your responsibilities you know things like that it really genuinely fluctuated depending on the job that we had so when we were both so when I was air crew the air battle manager job is at the entry level is you sit in front of a uh, computerized radar scope and you're getting a lot of different information in 
through the radar and the computer and the, the data links that give you data from other platforms and a bunch of different radios. And so you're getting all this information in and you're looking at your screen and you're listening to your radios and you have to interpret in our case, what's happening in uh, the air war. So you, you know, you're looking for, depending on your area of responsibility, you may be responsible for uh, our fighters and you have to be able to tell the fighters where the air to air fighters, okay, this is where all the bad guys are. This is what the bad guys are doing. This is where the friendlies are. So if in an air war, you know, on uh, the, av uh, so you train for the quote unquote typical air war and, you know, nothing is ever typical, but, yeah. but you would like, let's say we're going to go bomb this place um, to support the army and drive back, you know, the bad guys. And so you'd have the bombers, you'd have tankers to refuel things, you'd have um, the air-to-air -air fighters to make sure that uh, the bombers were protected. And so you have to be able to look at all that's going on and tell whoever you're responsible for the information they need to um, carry out their mission, whether it's to kill all the, the bad guys that are protecting the area or, you know, you know, bomb the target or refuel the other planes. And so um, it's like orchestra, it's like being a conductor in an orchestra where you're trying to bring all the different pieces together into an effective mission. And I loved it because um, it was very fast paced and you had to think in your feet and you had to problem solve. And, and yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, but I also did things like I taught at the, uh, air, sorry, my dogs, air, I taught, I taught, uh, I got to do a, an assignment at the air force Academy and teach, uh, English at the prep school Wow. Uh, there at the air force Academy. So that was a great job. And I liked that a lot. And I also got to, um, I went to an assignment where I taught at, um, the entry, the school for my career field. So I was also able to do some other jobs. So, you know, when I was uh, in operations, I could have a showtime any time of day. I could have it in the middle of the night. I could have it in early hours in the morning. I could have it in the middle of the day. And you go fly a mission, you have to brief, you have to execute the mission, you have to come back and debrief. So you know, that's about a 14 hour day, depending on the length of the mission. Um, or I would have to deploy and not be around, or maybe I just had to go in uh, more of a nine to five kind of thing, except it was like 7.30 to 4.30. Yeah. And then when I was teaching at the Air Force Academy, it was more of a, you know, I was there, same kind of thing, uh, seven. 7.30 to 4.35. So it just depended on the job, what my hours were and whether or not I was traveling and how much I was gone and that type of thing. 
Wow, that's so cool. Okay, so tell me where you all lived and like were stationed. And you can kind of do like when you were in and then when you guys like moved as a family because of your husband's orders. So I grew up in Virginia. Uh -huh. I left Virginia and I went to officer training school because I went to college at Virginia Tech. I did not do ROTC. So I applied um, like you're applying to OCS. I applied yeah. to OCS. I got accepted. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I went, I, at that Where point, is the Air Force OCS? It is now in uh, Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama. But at the time that I went through, it was in Texas. So it was oh, in okay. San Antonio, Texas. So I went from Virginia to Texas. And then when it and finished- real quick, that, what was OCS like? Just like a small little- it, it was, it was interesting. You know, I had never been, you know, all my friends gave me a hard time because, uh, they, I, I very strong willed apparently. And so when, um, I said I was going off to join the, I was applying to go to the air force, <laughs> their comment was, uh, you know, people tell you what to do. When that you're is exactly <laughs> Papa's answer to me. So for <laughs> listeners, Marty is my grandparents' neighbor, and that's how we got connected. And when I called to tell Mama and Papa, Frank and Linda, my like what I was doing, first of all, Mama, Linda, she said, wow, probably like 27,000 times. Like she couldn't even like come up with words besides wow. She was so shocked. And then my grandpa comes into like the camera because I FaceTime them to tell them this. Yeah. And he was like, you know, people are going to tell you what to do and you're not going <laughs> to like that. <laughs> that is the same reaction I got. There's going to be a lot of people telling you what to do. And I don't know how you're going to handle it. <laughs> and I will say, as a lieutenant, I did get in trouble a couple of times because I was like, why are we doing it that way? But <laughs> that's stupid. <laughs> I think that's my biggest thing I'm going to be like well that's like like you said earlier like I need the logical answer so like if that's not logical to me I'm not going to like that <laughs> exactly that's exactly right but uh, but I I have always um done best when I am challenged and that is one of the reasons I wanted to go into the military because I wanted to be challenged. I did not want to be doing the same thing every day. You know, Marty, I think that we're like soul sisters. <laughs> I feel like this is me talking. <laughs> so, so, you know, going to officer training school, I'd never been through anything like that before, but, you know, I grew up doing sports and, and, uh, so, you know, it's that same kind of thing where you're, you're, um, instead of being coached, you know, and, and I had some pretty hard coaches, uh, you know, it's the same kind of thing where they're like, this is what you have to do. And they give you like an impossible amount of time to do it in and, uh, yell at you if you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and I'm like, no, one's going to tell me I can't get that done. So, so. So, so I actually did uh, very well at OTS, far better, far better than I ever thought I would because I actually am, I grew up very introverted and I, mm -hmm. 
And I still am in the sense that, you know, I need some alone time every day. Yeah. But, um, but uh, so I didn't, I was, uh, and I was very shy. So when I got to OTS, my, my flight commander, you know, the actual staff officer who was in charge of my flight told me in one of our feedback sessions, he was like, you know, at some point you're going to have to start talking to people before noon. And I was like, Oh, I love that. That's so funny. I have anything to say before we awake. So, okay. So you went to San Antonio for OCS and then where did you go after that? So I went, uh, from there to my initial training was in Florida and I had to spend six months in Florida and then I went from Florida to, um, uh, and that was in the uh, Panama City area. So I was at okay. Tyndall, Tyndall Air Force Base in Panama City. And then I went from there to Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma um, for more training. And that was specifically for air crew training. Like I learned how to do the job in Florida on the ground, like the basics of the job. And then I had to go to Oklahoma to learn how to do the same job on a different platform in the air. So um, I spent six months in Oklahoma. And then my first assignment was in Anchorage, Alaska at- No way! Elmendorf Air Force Base. That's now, uh, it's a joint base now. What is it like living in Alaska? I, I really liked it. I did. I, I, I kind of cheated though, because I knew a lot of like some of the spouses I was friends with did not like it because they were there all the time, except when they got the opportunity to travel. But because of my job, I was gone at least half the year. So, you know, their big complaint was the winters are long. And I was like spending some of that time in central and South America, Hawaii, or the Philippines. So you didn't have to live in like a forever winter. Yeah. So, so I loved it, but I wasn't there year round, but it is gorgeous. And, um, the biggest thing about being in Alaska was all my family was in the East coast. And so trying to get from Alaska to the East coast was at least a 24 hour kind of oh my gosh you flew from because of the time difference and you flew from you had to fly from Alaska to Washington State and then there was usually another connection somewhere so so yeah that that was um the biggest challenge so to speak but it was it was a great assignment I loved it I got to do a wide variety of things. I traveled around the Pacific area because our area of responsibility was the Pacific. So I did a lot of stuff and saw a lot of things in the Pacific and then also Central and South America. So it was, it was a great assignment. I really wow. loved it. Okay. So after Alaska, where did you go? I went, that's when I went to uh, Colorado and I was in Colorado Springs teaching at the prep school right there on the Air Force Academy. And that was another great job. I cannot complain about any of the jobs I had. And uh, I did that for uh, three and a half years, I think. Yeah, three and a half years. And I loved it. I found out, and, and that was one thing about being in the military. I did get to do a lot of things. 
I found out I was good at things I never would have guessed I was good at. Um, like uh, who I would have never guessed I would ever enjoy teaching because mm-hmm. I can be very impatient <laughs> and I just absolutely loved teaching. I loved that job and um, I really enjoyed helping the um, prep school students and we got to do both you know, the academics and I got to um, work with them in the swimming program and we had to help with their military training because it was a small group. So I got to do a little bit of everything that was a, that was a really great job. That's cool. That was something Kate and I were talking about the other day. And this is kind of on like a broader spectrum, but I feel like when I like when I was a civilian and I still am a civilian, but like now being kind of entrenched in the military life because I'm yeah. married to a Marine, I thought that like as when I was fully a civilian and had no idea about military, I didn't realize that in the military, every job is covered by somebody in the military, you know? So like on like the bo- the broad spectrum, like on Camp Pendleton, the mailroom is full of Marines doing yes. the post like yeah. oh, yeah. and all the grounds, it's a working party of junior Marines going, hey, there's some weeds that need pulled, you better get out there with your orange vest. And all of a sudden, yeah, you have somebody doing this and you have somebody doing that. And I felt like as a civilian, you didn't realize that any job that needs taking care of, whether it's at teaching or doing this or doing that, it's just a, it's a military service member covering that position, doing that B billet, you know? And so it's things like that where you're like, wow. And like you said, you get so many different opportunities and you have so many opportunities to do B billets, which we talk a lot about on the podcast, just because yeah, you get a job to do this for a little bit and then you get a job to do that. And you have all these opportunities, which is something that was so attractive to me wanting to apply to the military was that right. every day can be different and there's endless opportunities. Yep. That, that is one of the things that really drew me to it. It really did. Yep. I agree. But you don't realize that for certain jobs, you will be doing the unfun things and mowing the yards. And oh, yeah. <laughs> I just like, didn't realize that. And, and there are always unfun jo- things about every job. And that's <laughs> why I have told my kids like all their lives, you know, I don't, I don't care what job you go into as long as it's legal and you know, you do it to the best of your ability. And it's a blessing when you can find something that you, that speaks to you and you enjoy because you put so much into work. I mean, yeah. it consumes a lot. You have to be there a lot. And when you have something that you really love or care about or feels worthwhile to you, that makes all the unfun things like the three hour meeting or the mission that is insanely boring for 12 hours. I mean, yeah. it makes all that tolerable because there's always those things that are not fun. No, I totally agree. Okay. So you were in Colorado and then where did you go next? I went back to Tyndall, Florida, where the schoolhouse was for my career field. And they had changed, you know, like all things in the military by that time it had changed and morphed into like a year long program. So it was very different uh, when I went back to it and I, I taught there and I was a flight commander there and 
and moved up into more of the administrative stuff. But it was good because I kind of combined a couple things I liked, which was, um, you know, I loved teaching and I found out that, you know, I, I was competent at teaching, like I was good at teaching and um, I got to be in my career field again. And, you know, I enjoyed that. So it, it combined those things for me. And it was also very stable. I don't have to travel more of a, you know, it was, it was demanding, but it was more of a nine to five. And I lived right on base and my daughter, by that time I was divorced and had custody of my daughter and I could, you know, I had her, she went to school on base. She oh, that's the, so nice. Yeah. She did the after school program on base. So I actually sought out that job and was lucky and fortunately got that job because I wanted it for my daughter because it would provide an ideal situation where she could go to a good school right on base. We could live right on base. I, the after school program, they took the kids from the base school to the youth center. She was in a program there. You know, I could leave work for five minutes and take her to the chapel program once a week. So, you know, oh, that's it was, awesome. It was, it was really ideal. And uh, I felt very fortunate. And that, in that, then that assignment is where I met my husband and I stayed there for a while. Um, we got married. He had, he had to, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that have had this experience where we got married and then he left, I think a month later for a year long uh, remote. So <laughs> a year. Wow. Yes. Actually. And then it got extended to like from 12 months to 13 and a half. Months. No, I thought mine is not kidding. I got married and a week later he deployed, but it was only for six months and we had done long distance for two yeah. years. So we were used to it, but Oh my gosh, that is insane. So how long was your like dual military when you guys were both in? So, you know what, I, that's a good question because technically when we got, I would say really only a year. Okay. So when he got home from that deployment was when you were getting out. I got out. So, so, so I got, all right. So we got married. He left. Uh, I went to visit him in Korea where he was remote Wow! I, about three months into his deployment. So yeah. So he went remote. I went to visit him early in his remote, like two or three months in, I went to visit him. I got pregnant while I was visiting him. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know it. He, he missed like the whole entire pregnancy. Our friend, our friends that I was working with were like, dude, you owe us because your wife is a cranky pregnant woman. <laughs> oh and my goodness. And we're her surrogates for, for her anger. <laughs> so, oh so, my gosh. That is so yeah, funny. I got, I got pregnant. He came home, uh, for 
he was able to come home for like his mid his mid remote leave okay and then he had to go back um so he was there i think shortly after we figured out i was pregnant and then he had to go back and um he got extended and then when he came back he had to go to a school up in alabama he went to uh um, squadron officer school so he was up in alabama for six weeks and that's about the time i separated okay uh, I separated right at the end of my pregnancy. And um, so he got home a week before I had the baby. So he literally, Thank heaven. he literally missed the, and then we moved a week after I had the baby. You moved with a newborn? Oh my gosh. Wait, so where did you move to? Uh, to Oklahoma. So we went back to Tinker Air Force Base, Oklahoma. Um, where we had both had to go through training so that we moved from Florida to, Back. yeah, to Oklahoma. Wow. State. And I, I did have to get permission, like the doctor's clearance to take a newborn on a plane. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause the, I so wouldn't have wanted to drive that. Yeah. So, and that's why, and my poor husband, so that was a crazy move. That was like, everybody's going to end up having stories like this. So, so yeah, I, I was, so he gets home. We're supposed to move. I'm due. The baby's late. He and my mother are trying to start labor. They end up talking me into make taking cod liver oil, which I do not recommend to anyone. Never do that. I went into labor, but my body, because I was a week late. So I did go into labor, um, but my body was like, you're not supposed to be delivering yet. So I was in labor for two days <laughs> before <laughs> I went back to the hospital. I went to the hospital. They sent me home because like nothing was happening. Marty, you're a saint. Oh my gosh. And that was after they told me I was an idiot for taking cod liver oil. And then, and then, so I went back to my house as in labor for two days. My water finally broke. So I had to go back to the hospital and um, they ended up actually having to do a C-section. Like I was in labor all day. Oh, and they no. ended up having to do a C-section. So I had a C-section. And then like a few days later, got back home. And then like a week and a half later, because like the movers are all scheduled. Yeah. So, like, a week later, the movers are there to take everything away. Oh my gosh. My husband took one of our cars in the u-haul and like tried to beat and managed to beat the movers to oklahoma and then he flew back <laughs> so he could take the other car but he like flew back so he beat the movers there and we were able to move door to door because you know i already had a place to live which is worth like all the pain it took because 
having to put your stuff in storage and, and then, then have to move it again is awful yeah so door to door is fantastic when you can get it so he beats the movers to oklahoma they unload everything he uh immediately catches a plane to come back to florida he comes back to florida puts me we like have to pass it's a base house so we have to pass inspection yeah get out of it that was crazy. We managed to um, uh, get it inspected and out of the house. He puts me, our, the oldest and the newborn on a plane to Oklahoma. We fly. He, he actually, no, a friend of ours put us on the plane because he drove back in order that to crazy. get there. He drove in one day back up to Oklahoma in order to beat us there so he could pick us up at the airport. And wow. uh, that was the- That is crazy. Okay, so you guys <laughs> live in Oklahoma and then where did you guys go after that? Cause he's been in what he went in, he was in 26 years, right? Yeah, well, a little wow. over, not quite 26, a little over 25. So we went from wow. Oklahoma, uh, we were there for four years. We were in Oklahoma City. We lived up in Edmond, but the Oklahoma City area, Tinker Air Force Base for four years. And then we got transferred to Las Vegas. Okay. Uh, he was there three years. And then the last year he was in DC going to school and the kids and I stayed in Las Vegas. Uh, so I was there four years. And then we went from Las Vegas to Virginia. We were there for two years. Was that close to where you were raised? It was. That was the first time I had been close to my family. We were in Northern Virginia. He was at the Pentagon. Oh, wow. And, that is uh, so cool. So my, so my parents were about, depending on traffic, of course, traffic is horrible there, but, you know, three hours basically from my parents. Oh, I bet you they love that. Yeah, that was great. So we were there two years and it was nice being close to home. And then we went uh, to Idaho. So we went Las Vegas, Virginia, Idaho. We were in Idaho, Mountain Home, the middle of nowhere. Idaho. I was in Idaho. <laughs> Mountain Home, Idaho for three years and then uh in you know every place has its its pros and cons and granted some places are better than others like getting stationed i mean y'all are marines so you know you get stationed let's say you know in san diego on the beach yeah that's a nice area as opposed to the high desert plateau of the middle of nowhere, Idaho, but, but, oh. but there, there are great things about like, we got to go, my husband's from Montana and he has relatives in, you know, the Seattle area, that Western half of Montana. Um, he had family in Boise, Idaho area. So we were able to see his family and they're just beautiful areas out there. So it's oh, all- Oh, for sure. There's a lot of beautiful areas. 
It's all in what you make of it. So uh, how far were you from like Coeur d'Alene and those kind of areas? Actually, Coeur d'Alene, because we were in the southwest part of the state. Coeur d'Alene okay. was we never went up to Coeur d'Alene because it was it would have been a long trip to try to get up to Coeur d'Alene. Oh, I bet. Um, but we would go up into the mountains. Um, my favorite spot in Idaho that I used to always call my happy place was uh, McCall, Idaho, because it mm -hmm. was gorgeous. It was up in the mountains and there was a huge lake up there and uh, it was fun any time of year. So uh, and we went to Yellowstone multiple times. Oh, and, that's so neat. Yeah. So it was it was good. We got out to Seattle to see his sister and her family. So it was a really good. It was, it it's was, a nice location um, of like all the places that are close to it. <laughs> <laughs> now, yes. And we lived on base there too. And uh, so, so yeah, I mean, and we had told the kids, uh, the younger two had never. So obviously uh, the oldest lived on base in Florida. Mm -hmm. And uh, we told the younger two when we were living to I moving to Idaho, we we're like, we're going to live on base. It's going to be different. But there's some great things about living on base. You're going to have a lot more freedom because living on base, you you are in no kidding a gated community. Like that a is gated, a gated community. Gated community. <laughs> with armed guards at the gate so <laughs> which is so funny that you say that today because literally I went to the store today and I had a I don't want to say like a scary situation but as I was like pulling in I saw this guy like walking out of the store and it was just Dollar Tree it's like two miles from my house like it's not far or anything and so I saw this guy walking out of the store and I pulled up got out of my car walked in and so I'm in there and I'm grabbing a bunch of stuff for um, a gift and a like this trip I have upcoming and yada 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 and also that same guy walks in and like walks down past the aisle by me and like most definitely probably does not have a home if you catch my drift yeah <laughs> like all right well like this is the exact same guy that just walked out of the store and so I'm like walking all over because I'm like wait I forgot that on that aisle I'm like I'm just kind of like back and forth all over and I was trying to put this goodie bag together with my friend and um just of, like random stuff because she's getting married and I was like oh I love these scrub brushes and like oh this is super nice and then she's going on a road trip for her honeymoon so I was like oh I'll grab snacks and like it was just super easy and so I'm walking all over the store and every aisle I see him and I'm like this is so creepy it is. and so I'm like kind of like freaking out just because I thought it was very strange that I kept seeing him because my pattern in the store was very erratic because I was on one aisle to the next. And I was like, this feels weird that I'm constantly seeing this man and making eye contact with him, you know? And so I kind of just felt weird because then he checks out and he hangs out on the front of the store. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to call somebody on the phone and I'll just talk to somebody on the phone. And so I called my mom. She didn't answer. I called my dad. She didn't, he didn't answer. And I was going to call Kate, but I was like, he's at work. He's doing a fire mission today. Like, I don't want to bug him. So I called my little sister and thankfully she answered. And she's with my parents. And I'm like, can no one answer their phones around here? And so um, I'm just like, talk to me. Just talk to me like I'm in the, in the store. I'm like, I'm on the phone with him the whole time, like checking out all this kind of stuff. And so... 
finally like get my car and he's outside by my car not like super super close to my car but he's like pacing the par- the parking lot and I'm like oh my gosh like this is so creepy and so my mom's like I'm so sorry I didn't my phone and I was like it's okay I just like wanted to sit on the phone so I'm talking to them and then I get back on base and my mom's like oh you're gone right and I was like yeah and then she's like are you sure you're okay being at home and I was like well mom I'm back on base like if something's creepy I'll just tell 10 marines and they'll jump on him you know but it's truly true like you don't realize how safe you are living on base and then yeah, he yeah. finds out and he's like why did you call me and I was like I thought you were CPXing like I thought you were gonna be busy and he's like no you always call me if something like that happened I will answer my phone for you and I was like okay I'm sorry, but I just don't want to get you in trouble. And, but like, it was creepy. And everyone talks about Oceanside being creepy. Sorry, my husband just came home and is deciding to unpack his lunchbox while I'm recording. Babe, it's loud. <laughs> it's not I, actually, I actually cannot hear it. All of a sudden, he like scares me because I see this person walk into my kitchen and I was like, oh my gosh. And then he's like turning on the faucet. There he is. <laughs> He walks in while you're talking about a creepy man stalking you. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so we'll figure out where I'm not at that part, but I'll say, okay, I think when I I will say, I think it's important that um you women especially when you're young because um you know you want to be polite you want to be civil you want to believe the best of people you don't want to overreact or overblow it or or you know be silly or whatever else you're worried about being when we should just be worried about being safe and so it's good that you paid attention to um what was going on and listen to yourself because uh, I actually had that happen to me decades ago. You know, I had uh, run to the store when we were in Oklahoma and I had a guy follow me throughout the store. And so I went and told one of the store employees and they walked me out to my car. That's so good. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel bad. Like, saying like oh well he was homeless but like he was and like my thing is like it was just scary and I thought like like you said my mom has like ingrained in my brain to like be aware be aware be aware and that was my thing is like I I don't jump to conclusions super like quickly but I was like I'm walking erratically through the store like switching aisles because I was like oh I forgot this I forgot that I need to get this I need to get that and then to constantly see him. And I was like, you've been in the store twice now already. Like this doesn't make sense, you know? And so that's like why I was like so freaked out. So then I'm on base and I'm in the commissary and it has no service. And Kate's like freaking out calling me. And he's like, why aren't like, why didn't you call me? Like all this kind of stuff. And I'm like trying to like find a spot in the <laughs> store where like I can get service and like answer him. And so everyone's like, I'm like stopping mid aisle. Like, can you hear me? Can you hear me? <laughs> You know what, but the other thing you can do if you're in that situation, and I've told my, my kids, especially my daughters who, who say I've made them totally paranoid. I'm like, good, I've done my job. So they, they, I've told them, don't be afraid to like 
make stuff up. Don't answer intrusive questions from oh, people. Oh, 100%. Ubers? I, I, go, I think I, I tell people I know the city. I'm like, yeah, you're dropping off my cousin's house. Well, you got a suitcase. Yeah, because I'm staying the night there. Like, <laughs> yeah, no. I always like, oh, I come up with these erratic stories. And then yeah. I'm, like, and I'm like, so I just want you to know that like I was a stripper in my past life and now I'm visiting this state and I have 12 siblings because I have four dads. And that's what the Uber person knows about me. Or, or, you know, if you couldn't have gotten anybody on the phone, you just start pretending you're talking to your husband, the 250 pounds, six, seven police officer. Who likes that to makes me people. think of something. So when Bama and Papa were moving from their Ohio house to the house that they live in now, they, it was around the same time that I was moving into my apartment in Ohio and they pretty much got rid of all of their furniture because they bought all new furniture for their Holly Springs house. And so they left a lot of furniture for me. And so one day they're like, hey, go over and grab all of the drawers of the dresser. We'll move the dresser because it's obviously too heavy. But if you can just take all the drawers, put them in your car and take them to your apartment. So I was like, okay, Saturday afternoon, middle of July, Westerville, Ohio. Very, very, very safe town. All this kind of stuff. So I show up, I back my car into their garage, open up my trunk, go in the house, and I grab two drawers. I put them in my trunk, and all of a sudden I see this car. And like exactly the feeling I had in the store, the like hair on the back of my neck sticks out. And I'm like, why is that car sitting there? And for some reason, I just sat there and looked at it. And they had a for sale sign in their yard. And so I was like, okay, maybe it's it. But it said like pending or close or something like that. I was like, well, maybe someone's still just trying to get the information. And so I just stand there and watch them. And so they do this loop. They keep driving back. They do like in the cul-de-sac and they come and they sit in front of the house. And I was like, I feel like that's just so strange to sit in front of the house. And so I just sit there and stand there and I kind of just watching them. Then, Marty, just wait. They pull up, block the driveway, and like pause there, then keep driving, do a UE in the um, middle of the street, and then park diagonal from the house and sit there. That's and so this time, I like have my mom on the phone, and I'm like, hi, mom, I'm here. And she's like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know, just talk to me. They do that four times, and they come back again, and they park in front of the street, and they do it again. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Like, this is strange. So then my mom's trying to call the police. And like, I'm deathly afraid of them being like, you put a false call on, you know, like my fear is that like, you you know, like I was always taught like you only call the police in emergency. So my mom's on the phone with them and with me. And so they're like, we're sending someone over. And then the car pulls in, blocks the driveway and tries to start talking to me. Oh, that's so creepy. And so they're speaking a language that I don't know. And so I just keep saying, like, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. And then they're like, come here, come to the car, come here. And I'm like, I can't, I'm sorry. And so I'm like trying to talk to my mom while she's talking to the lady. So then the late the operator is like, get off the phone with your daughter, let us call her. And they basically told me that if something were to happen to me, it would have been better for them to be on the phone with me because they record every call and yes. they just kind of play certain things back. Yes. So finally, I think they realize the police are coming because I'm on the phone telling details of the car to this lady. So they literally like storm off, like, like drive forward. And so I'm like kind of happy they leave kind of mad because I'm like, I wish the police would have like 
seen them. But my fear was that if they, since they drove off, that the police would think I was lying. No, yeah. So the police finally show up and they basically were like, next time try and get more details. And I'm like, I was too afraid to get closer to the car. Like, you want me to like get snatched? I have no idea where these people are coming from. And they had tinted windows. I don't know how many people are in the car, like all this kind of stuff. And so the police show up and they're asking all these questions and I'm like just crying. So I'm like, I almost just got snatched from the middle of Westerville. Like what is happening? But it was creepy and it truly taught me like how alert I need to be. And it's not that like everybody has bad intentions, but you don't know who has bad intentions. You don't, you don't. And clearly that, that, that was very suspicious behavior. Like the guy following you around the store you have to assume, I mean, you don't want to think bad things about somebody, but you have to assume that that, I mean, that is a potentially dangerous situation when someone is clearly following you, lingering by your car, or when the creepy people in the tented windows are like clearly hanging around, observing you, and you can't go near that car. You're right. You don't, they're like, you should have gotten more details. No, no. And sorry, that was like a tangent, but that's the thing about base. We feel so safe and I love that. And I think we sometimes take it for granted, like how safe we really are. And it's something that I'm like, I, I re- don't realize like how wonderful it is to live on base and have those extra levels of security. I was in Oceanside, like right when I came to California and I had a car following home from the store. And do you know how nice it was to pull up to that gate and them have to turn around? I was like, yeah, you're not getting through them, buddy. The MPs will get you. <laughs> it is so awesome. It is. You're like, bye-bye. Yeah. And I, cause if worst case scenario, he got behind me cause he somehow had base access. I got to talk to a military police before I can walk in. I got to show my ID and I got to say, that car has been following me. I don't know where, who that's in that car, but they've been following me for a very long time. Yep. Yep. It and is it's nice, so nice to live and feel so safe and secure. Yep. My, my kids loved living on base because like the first year we lived there, um, my youngest uh, was, oh my goodness. So he would have been in second grade. And they, it, it's time to trick or treat. And he's standing there with his friends, this little pack of boys. And we're like, yeah, y'all can go trick or treat. And he just looked at me like, wait, what? We can go by ourselves. <laughs> like, yep, go to this area. And, be, and they just had the best time. So yeah, they loved living on base and having it. And it was in Mountain Home you know, every base is going to be different in the dynamics, but it's usually a very uh, tight community and especially Mountain Home Air Force Base was actually 15, 20 minutes away from town and the town was really tiny. So you have a small Air Force Base in the middle of nowhere, 20 minutes from the smallest town, the small, the closest town, the closest town is this tiny little town, wow. which is an hour away from like the nearest city. Mm-hmm. So it was a very close community. It was, it was oh, a really, awesome. yeah. Okay, so in Idaho, where did you guys go after? We went, actually went to Belgium. <gasps> so we went from wow. Idaho 
Cool. Yeah. What was it like moving across the country? Uh, overseas move. So moves are hard in and of themselves and, and can be really crazy. Um, moving overseas is like a whole nother level <laughs> because you have to send, you have to send like your hold baggage that is supposed to get there sooner. So items that you may need sooner. So you kind of have to sort like, what do I have to keep with me the whole entire time? Like what has to travel with me? Uh, what can I send in hold baggage, which is a small shipment that's theoretically supposed to get there sooner that will have things you need right away. And then the rest of your stuff, which hopefully will get there sometime the first year you're there. <laughs> and, and so it's just, and then, you know, you're usually trying to figure everything out, different country, different customs, different requirements, different language, depending on where you're going. Uh, most people don't necessarily know the language in the country that they're moving to. And what, and what language is spoken in Belgium? I don't think I know. There's actually three. The part that we were living in was French. They spoke okay. French. Um, the upper part is um, Flemish. And then there's some areas that speak German. And even though I took French in high school, yeah, that had been a while ago. And so while I could read certain things uh, and I had tried to brush up on my French, mm -hmm. as soon as somebody started talking, yeah, I was totally lost. I'm yeah. like, slow down. Yeah, oh yeah, they speak so fast. <laughs> yes. And in French, like they link the words. So conversational French is like, very fast and it doesn't necessarily sound like when you're reading so yes it was it was very challenging I learned a lot about myself on that assignment and one of the things was I don't like not knowing what people are saying <laughs> yeah wow okay so you lived in Belgium which is so freaking cool and then where did you go after that we went to Alabama for a year uh, Shane went to school. So we were in Belgium for two years, Alabama for not even a year. And then we moved here and he was assigned uh, to the Fort Bragg Pope Air Base um, complex. And he was there for two years. And then the kids and I stayed here and he went to Vegas for two years. That's he, right. I think I remember Bama yeah. telling me about that. Yeah. So he was in Vegas for two years. And then uh, he retired from there. So How often was he able to come home when he was doing the two years in Vegas? Well, that's a good point. So <laughs> in theory, he was going to be gone a lot during that assignment. That assignment requires a lot of traveling. Mm -hmm. So that was one of several reasons the kids and I stayed here. Yeah. But then COVID happened. And he wasn't able to travel and that included coming home. So there were longer stretches that he did not get to come home. Yeah. So that, that was really hard because he was out there, you know, and it was really, at least I had the kids um, 
he was out there by himself locked down and he was renting a crappy little apartment because you know we're running two households so he yeah, had to split bah and everything like that uh, so he had a minimum amount of stuff in a crappy little apartment and he didn't even have cable or internet he he didn't you know and so he was uh yeah that was hard oh my gosh yeah that is hard so what was the deciding factor of having him retire after 25 years? Well, I think for him, it was a lot of reasons. It was a lot of different things. You know, we had had demanding assignments. Uh, we had been apart a lot. And um, I think, you know, having, having both perspectives, having had like, been active duty and had a child and I had had to deploy a couple times after I'd had my daughter. Um, it is hard being the one at home uh, when your partner deploys, but it's, it's also really hard being the one that leaves. And it's Which is something I think that I'm interested to see if I get in, like how that changes, because it is different when you are the service member, but it's also when you're the wife and you've been able to experience both. So you really know what it's like on both sides of the coin, which I think is so like valuable. It is. And it, it did. I think it did help because I. I see a lot of um, spouses and partners that have don't have a military background and their introduction to the military is when they marry into it. And, um, and it is very challenging. And, and I think it's harder if you have not been in the military to be tolerant of uh, our or understand that when orders change at the last minute are mm -hmm. like, you know, you're supposed to go to this job and you don't go to this job. You're supposed to deploy then you're not going to deploy then, um, you know, all the stuff that they, that as the outsider, you think is just ridiculous. And don't get me wrong. Sometimes it is actually ridiculous. And, and sometimes it's just the way it is because you know, the military, I used to say, uh, the military likes to keep its options open. And really, that is the truth. You, you know, you may like the situation may change, or there may be a better way of doing it, or um, they don't want to do that anymore. They don't want to do X, you got to do Y. I used to say when we were mission planning, um, you have to start with a plan, like you have to have a plan and then you have to be flexible because that plan will change 20 times. Yeah. So you have to know your job well enough and the situation well enough to be able to, to flex. And so like, I think being in the military made me like a, I'm going to plan for every contingency kind of person. Mm -hmm. Like when we would get ready to move somewhere, oh my word, I would look up 
every bit of information that I could. I would like, you know, cause we had kids, I'd look, okay, what school do I want them to be in? What can we afford? Where can we afford to live in those schools? Like you get different schools that you, you know, are interested in. Sometimes you have no choice. Like when we moved overseas, we didn't really have a choice as to where the kids would go to school, you know, or when we moved to Idaho, there was very limited choice. So sometimes the choice is limited, but, you know, I would just look up, I would be as prepared as I could because it gives you a little more sense of control because there's like, I tell my kids all the time, you have no control over anything in your life other than your own behavior, like how you do things. And that's hard enough. Like to me, that's hard enough (laughs) to do is like control my own behavior and be the best, you know, that I can be. And so, you know, it gives you a little more sense of, uh, I don't know, security is not the right word, but, you know, you, there, the, like I've said a million times, it's a very demanding lifestyle and moving is stressful and you're moving all the time and you have to find like new, everything, new doctors, new, and the military member, whoever the military member is, they have a distinct advantage when you move, mm-hmm. like moving is way harder on the non-active duty spouse and family because the active duty member has a job they're going to. So even though, you know, I know from experience, you're nervous going to the new job, you know, you got to prove yourself all over again. So there's all that stress. At least you have going, you have something to focus on. You have something to put your energy into the spouse doesn't they're the ones worrying about the school and the kid and the house and yeah all of that that's that that is exactly right because whether you have kids or not when you're the active duty member and you go to a new base uh boom you have a group you have a reason you have a purpose you have a group you have a job you know you're all set if nothing else you have that you could be like, no, no one else in the universe, but you have that as the partner, you go someplace new and, you know, they talk about, there's a lot of talk within, um, you know, the military community about kids and how to transition kids and everything that's important. But whatever I have seen and experienced is as an adult, it sucks having to make new friends everywhere you go. Like I had one friend when they got transferred from Virginia and I had known her before we had been stationed together before and they had to move. And then again in Virginia um, and she found out they were moving. She's like, I don't want to move. I have enough friends. I don't want to meet anybody else. It's exhausting. It's hard to like, like, I feel like where I'm at right now is like, I know we only have one more year in California. And so I'm like, do I even want to meet new people? Cause it's only going to be a year. 
Like you have this whole thing, then you get to a certain time frame when you're like, I know I'm going to get orders, or I know I'm going to move. So why am I putting effort in? And it, it's, <laughs> then you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm lonely. I need to make more friends. I need to meet new people. No, I totally get it. It's like such a hard double-edged sword. But I think the fact that you know the both sides of it, like I'm just so grateful that you were able to come on and talk about that because I think that's something that a lot of spouses struggle with him it's hard is we don't see that side you know we don't we have those struggles and I think sometimes even the service members don't realize that we're dealing with those struggles when we're forced to move all these different places they they don't unless unless you know it would be the exception I think for someone so I have a I have a great example how to do how to do it well in and how it often happens. So you have two young men in this particular case uh, move to the unit we were in in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And they are brand new, like 18, 19 years old. They're young. Uh, they have married their high school sweethearts. Uh, neither of these young women had been out of the towns they grew up in. And they go from where they have been at with very close community to the middle of nowhere, Idaho. Oh. And one of the couples take a place on base. Like they sign up for base housing. They're going to live on base. Uh, so uh, they're living on base. He takes his wife to work and shows her where he's working and introduces her to like all the people he's and so she meets them and they talk about hey you know I have a, a spouse or you know or we're getting we're gonna go do this or so she has she is like has a, a, a bubble now she has yeah, she has resources she has connections she knows faces you know when you see someone in this grocery store even if you're not close to them a, fulfill, a familiar face feels really good when you're coming from a town that you know every face in the grocery yeah. store and and she they only have one car because they're a young couple they have one car she can walk to stuff if she needs to oh i know i literally love walking everywhere to base because it's so easy you can't it's yeah. nice she can so the other couple takes an apartment in town for whatever reason, it's not important. So they take an apartment in town and they only have one car and that town is literally 15, 20 minutes away. And she's isolated inside an apartment 12 hours a day. Doesn't know anybody. It's a, I mean, there was literally almost nothing to do in that town. And, uh, uh, she is, he never took her like into work and she really struggled. She really, both super nice young ladies. I really liked both of them. And, and that is where something like a spouse's group can make a real difference. Oh, yeah. Um, or, and there's all different kinds of programs because, you know, we made sure, you know, the people, the other, in this case, we, we had a few male spouses, but it was primarily women um, were like 
checking on her and connecting with her. And she ended up getting a job at a place nearby that and it was like a Dollar Tree that it was, she could walk to it, but it got her out of the house and, and she so made good. it, but that was so hard on her. It was so hard on her. And I, I just, you know, I hated seeing it. It was, um, and I was so glad that she made it, you know, she was able to, it, it just didn't, over, she, she didn't like pack her bags while her husband was at work one day and leave him a note. I'm back. I'm gone. No, it is hard. And then imagine, like, if he had to deploy, you know, and like, there, I mean, it's really hard. And that's what I'm saying. Like, they, and I think that's like one of the things I love about the podcast as well is like, you're able to understand, like, one, that you're not alone. So if you are in this position right now, that there are ways to like make your situation better. Cause I remember even sometimes, like, I live on a base, and sometimes if I don't leave the house, Kate comes home and I'm like, I've started a wall and I haven't had any human contact in 12 hours. Please talk to me. And he's like, okay, well, all I've done is talk to people. So I don't want to talk. And I'm like, you don't talk to me. me. I've only talked to myself for 12 hours. (laughs) You know, and like, it's hard and you have to balance that on top of all the other things that you're balancing. And that's something that I've learned a lot about the podcast is that you're not alone. Like there are so many people that go through those same things and there's ways to make it better and there's ways to make it work. Like it is possible to live this lifestyle. And it, and I think it was hard to, because we had a lot of very young spouses because we had a lot of very young airmen, like the majority of the squadron was, you know, there's about 400 people and the vast majority of them are 18 to 22. And they have very, you know, the ones that are married have very young spouses. And so, you know, they come in and they don't want to join a spouses group. That's boring. And there's a bunch of old women and most of them have, uh, and when I say old, I'm thinking like anything over 30 and they have kids and I, why would I want to hang out with them? And it's not, you know, my goal was, and I went from like never ever being a part of a spouse's group to being in charge of a spouse's group. And I was like, this is not going to go well. And so, so, and I am not like, I would not ever consider myself a fun leader of the party kind of person. Like that is not me. So, so my goal was to just make sure everybody had a lifeline and like, which is so awesome for me to do. And I think that that, and I think like from my experience, certainly the Air Force got better at that. Um, And I know the Navy already had, like when I was coming up both as active duty and then as a spouse, I knew the Navy had different programs and, and, you know, they they have like, it's called like fleet and family, I think. Yeah. And they really had to, I think the Navy I could be speaking out of turn, but I really think the Navy did in, and by extension, like the Marines did already was ahead of the other branches because, you know, from the beginning of the Navy, they put people on ships and send them away for at a minimum six months, you know, 
they were gone forever. And uh, if they hadn't had some programs in place, they would have never had an intact family. That's so, so, true. so I think, uh, yeah, I, I just think however you're comfortable with it, you have to have some kind of lifeline of support group, you know, whether that's your neighbors that live beside you, or you have a job and it's, you know, neighbors and the people at work, or it's like, you know, a spouse's group or whatever. I think it's important to have a lot of different ways to get support and then make sure that uh, they know about it. And I will tell you that um, I used to get on the young, and in this case, pretty much all the young males about like not making sure their spouse had, you know, I was not one to mince words. Like, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so to close, you've given us so much wisdom and information and knowledge, but if you just had one advice for military spouses, what would you like to impart on us unseasoned military spouses from a very seasoned military spouse? I, oh, I do. I was like, that's impossible. That's impossible. (laughs) But you know what? I actually can sum it up because I used to tell this to friends of mine and later, like when I was trying to help other spouses um, as the chair of the spouses group, I, it doesn't have to be pretty. Like it doesn't have to be pretty. You just have to get done what you need to get done. You have to do what you need to do for yourself and your partner or your family or, you know, but it doesn't have to be pretty. Like no one has to know that, uh, you know, you haven't taken a shower for a week. You know, it's no one is doing it perfectly. No one is doing it perfectly. And, uh, you know, and, and people say that all the time, especially since social media has boomed mm-hmm. and everybody's on social media and everybody's life looks great. But especially in the military, like uh, it, it honestly doesn't have to be pretty. And it's okay too. Like you were talking about, you just wanted your husband to talk to you and he didn't want to talk. And that's a big thing. Like that's a big disconnect and it's okay to say, I need you to talk to me. Like I, the, when I quit active duty and I was staying at home that first year transition, I thought I was going to lose my mind. Like I seriously thought, and I told my husband, I go, you need to call me every day. Cause it didn't call, it did not occur to him to call me. I'm like, you need to call me. And he's like, what's wrong? I was like, I, I don't, like you were saying, I don't talk to adults anymore. Like there is no talking to adults. I'm losing my mind. And there's no one in the corner on a loudspeaker going, oh, the way you made that bed, genius. The fact that you got all the kids where they, everyone has clean clothes. No one died today. You know, you fed everyone. No one's telling me how great I am. And I had just left a 
career field and a profession where I knew right away if I was doing a good job or not. I was it's like a I feel like they talk a lot about that like when you stay home with the kids it's a it's an uh it's what is it called they just say it's like a job where you don't get paid and you don't get told thanks like it's a it's a constant job of doing all these things and no one being able to tell you you did a good job because it's either children or no one's there to view it yeah and and if you have kids I mean my statement on parenthood I'm like it's so unfair like in parenting, you have a job where like you could die and not know if you were at all successful at your job. <laughs> like, yeah. you can, even if you live to an old age, how do you know if you did a good job? <laughs> oh, that is so I'm, I'm used to knowing whether, you know, I became, I used to think I was reasonably intelligent and somewhat competent. And then I became a parent and I found out I didn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> didn't get anything done right so yeah I mean I I think in it's common for humans I guess uh, we have such high expectations for ourselves and the military attracts a lot of very type a or however you want to put it people that are highly motivated to do well and to succeed and excel and you know, it's easy to, and there's a lot of pressure, you know, it's a closed community and it can be extremely supportive, but there can be like a lot of pressure to feel like you have to be a certain way or do it a certain way. And there are so many different kinds of people in the military and especially the spouses, because they're from all over. I mean, you could have an 18-year-old that just graduated high school and hadn't been out of her town, or I knew another woman I lived next door to that was a professor of political science. That's awesome. You know? And so... Yeah, there is a huge vast, and that's, I think, that's cool, but it does make it hard in certain situations because it is so vast. It is so vast, and it's so varied, and I think it's hard when you're a spouse because there are often assumptions made about a spouse that, you know, you may be that it was very hard for me. And I would get really mad when I went from active duty to being a spouse, when I contacted base agencies, or I had to interact with like, I don't know, the moving office or whatever. I, it, they can be very condescending. Yeah, you're like you wouldn't talk like this to my husband and you wouldn't have talked to me like this if I was actually still in so let's yeah. let's watch ourselves yeah and it's and it's I think it's a big mistake in life in general to make assumptions about somebody else's intelligence or education level or ability to do something or whatever you know based on the fact what they're a military spouse you don't know anything about them so there's a such a wealth of people and talent and personalities out there that an interest like there so many people like you may have a rodeo champion living next door to you and you don't know that and it and it's there's so much and and I think that um it's easy to forget that because the focus is so intensely on the active duty member 
mm-hmm. and the the service you know you know it's on the army and the mission and and are the it's on the marine and and what they're doing or what the unit's doing or yeah. you know the the intensity of focus excuse me and the demands are so much there that it's um even even though there's like a military spouse appreciation and you know all these different and i think that's important but the day-to-day living and existing and uh feeling good about yourself is hard and so having a military spouse appreciation day that's great but the everyday appreciation is what is usually usually feels like it's lacking you know well thank you so much this was literally awesome i am just i'm so grateful i've learned so much and i know all the listeners will too uh, Marty, you're great. You're literally oh, you. amazing. And you guys had such a cool story and all the different places that you guys have lived and what you've experienced. And I just, I love that we have people like this on the podcast because I know that there's so many people that needed to hear what you had to say and needed to know that it doesn't have to be pretty. You just got to get it done. <laughs> That's my motto. Doesn't have to be pretty. It does not have to, that's going to be on my gravestone. Doesn't have to be pretty. (laughs) Well, thank you so much again. I really do appreciate it. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. It was a lot of fun. All right, y'all. Was that episode not awesome? Another huge thank you to Marty for taking the time out of her day to come on and for all the insight she gave us. And obviously you can tell we had so much fun. We just laughed the whole time. It was so heartwarming and she truly is the best. I wanted to close with a quote really quickly and it's by G.K. Chesterton and it says, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. And I just wanted to give another shout out to all the men and women that serve our country and that put their lives on the line. I am truly forever in debt to them and I'm so grateful that we live in this country and that we have the freedoms and abilities that we have to do these things in this country. I'm really excited that I have the opportunity to do this podcast and I'm really excited after having all these conversations about what's coming up for season two. I hope you enjoyed this episode and next week's is with Bianca who was on a little bit earlier um, in the year and we talk all about infertility and miscarriages and rainbow babies and kind of what to do if you're experiencing problems conceiving and it was really informational I learned a ton so check that out and then season two will air on October 8th. Thank you again for tuning in and I hope Marty was so informational for you and you gain something and I will catch you next Friday.